If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Michael Shalov, co-founder and CEO of Fireblocks, a secure digital asset infrastructure company. Michael is a serial cybersecurity entrepreneur and investor. He co-founded Fireblocks in 2018 to help businesses custody, manage treasury operations, access DeFi, mint and burn tokens, and manage their digital asset operations. Fireblocks now works with over 1,200 financial institutions, supports over 850 tokens, and was most recently valued at $8 billion. Prior to Fireblocks, he co-founded Lacoon Mobile Security, which was acquired by Checkpoint, and he was then appointed head of products, mobile, and cloud security for Checkpoint. Before his commercial endeavors, Michael pioneered the mobile security fields in an elite military technology unit, 8200, where he received the Israeli Presidential Excellency Honor for his contributions. He holds a BSc in Computer Sciences and Physics from Ben-Gurion University of Israel. Let's welcome Michael. Hi, Michael. Excited to have you here today, especially given what you've been building with Fireblocks. Um, But for everybody out there listening, let's just start with the basics. Um, What's Fireblocks in your own words? And can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of building the business and that aha moment you had? Yeah, sure. So first of all, Alexa, thanks for uh, having me on the on the show. We started Fireblocks about uh, four years ago, back in uh, 2018. What we essentially came to build is a is a platform and infrastructure for nowadays any business to come and build uh, services for Web three cryptocurrencies and digital assets. So effectively, what we are uh, allowing them to do is, is is basically we deal with all the custody and wallet uh, capabilities that they have. So basically to store the, the funds in a secure way and also all the requirements that they have in terms of transferring those assets that is actually the most complicated problem over there to make sure that they're being able to do it securely with a lot of uh, operational efficiency. So that's the, the core of the platform and it also provides all the backend services. So in some ways, it's sort of like the Shopify of crypto, right? That uh, gives people the uh, businesses and nowadays prim- primarily uh, financial institutions to come in and uh, tap into this ecosystem in a very easy, secure and uh, robust way. So that's the platform. And the way we started it is actually, we came to it from the cybersecurity angle that back in 2017, there were four exchanges in South Korea that got hacked by basically the Lazarus Group that is affiliated with the North Korea. And they stole about $200 million from those exchanges. What I've done for the previous employer that uh, Checkpoint that bought my former company, uh, we were part of the investigation team on that uh, bridge. So we basically came in and did some of the analysis that happened of how those exchanges got hacked and basically came up with the thesis that this is a really important space that cryptocurrencies and digital assets are really going to re-platform finance. And 
there is just a lack of infrastructure for institutions and businesses to build upon in a, in a secure way. Is there anything else from that hack, and given that you're really focused on building the product from sort of a cybersecurity lens, that changed the way you thought about the product? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the hack itself, basically, what, what it sort of emphasizes that uh, there was a very specific gap in terms of how security and operations it was done on the transactional level. Back in 2017, you already had solutions for what we call cold storage, so essentially some kind of very deep, slow, internet-disconnected capability to store coins and assets. Uh, but anything that is transactional didn't really exist in a robust and scalable way, right? So we understood that there was that gap. To be honest, I'm not, I wasn't really familiar at that point in time with cryptocurrencies. And through that, we sort of went down the rabbit hole of understanding what this entire ecosystem means and why this is going to be transformational for financial services and probably nowadays I think many more things like you know gaming, social media and so on. And we were able to understand that if we focus on, on, on those businesses uh, at that point in time, we'll be able to create something that is really a necessity for the masses to come. That was really the understanding. Clearly, after that hack, we did talk with, uh, I don't know, like 40 or 50 institutions that were already active in this space. Keep in mind, it was 2017, 2018, so it was quite early. And, and we were able to validate some of the points that you know we stumbled on. You're known for using the novel form of wallet security called multi-party computation, MPC. For those new to the crypto world, just for the sake of just giving them the quick one-minute kind of education, why is that so such an innovative piece of technology and why is it so significant? Yeah, so the reason why it's so innovative is because essentially what you're trying to do, you're trying to remove the single point of failure, right, uh, or the single point of compromise. So there is basically not a, one single individual that can be hacked or a single endpoint that can be hacked. And then if that endpoint was hacked, then the hackers can essentially take control of the private key and extract the funds. This is usually what, what happens with the regular wallets. So MPC basically provides this kind of capability that the private key is distributed across multiple endpoints, multiple servers, and multiple phones in, in, in our specific example. And in order for the hackers to gain full control over the wallet, they basically need to hack all those endpoints and phones that are distributed between multiple individuals, multiple organizations, multiple forms of operating system. And that's sort of incrementally extremely difficult for the hackers to do, right? So that's very important. And in parallel to that, traditionally, the view of creating or removing the single point of failure or single point of compromise actually emerged back in 2012 with a technology called multisig. The problem with multisig was that it was only suitable for Bitcoin. Once we started to see a lot of the really innovative blockchain projects emerge, such as Ethereum, Solana, Polkadot, all, all the different blockchain projects that we that coexist today, you needed sort of a, a single algorithm to be able to do it across all those chains. And the unique thing about MPC is that it moves the solution from a blockchain-dependent um, solution to a blockchain-agnostic solution, and therefore it is much more suitable for today's world. 
Can you talk a little bit about your go-to-market? How did you think about building out your customer base at financial institutions? Yeah, so I think the unique thing about the way that we went about our go-to-market is that um, at the very early days, we figure out a, a mechanism that will have some level of network effect. Okay, so in some ways, our go-to-market is actually fairly standard. We basically, it's mostly done through an enterprise sell. You know, COVID, I think, revolutionized the way that this is being done, right? So a lot of our sales before COVID were face-to-face -face meetings, right? I mean, BlockFi specifically, I was in their office when there were five people, right? And you had to have all those interactions. By the way, they didn't buy, buy the platform back then, but the, the point in time where they bought the platform was actually when COVID hit and the uh, I think that entire sell motion was done over Zoom. But it's still an enterprise sell uh, motion or SMB sell motion where we we have salespeople that, uh, uh, or account managers that will interact with the client and will demo the platform and will uh, explore the values that it can provide to, to the client. The, the main advantage that we had in terms of, I would say, the exponential growth is that we did unpack a very important called viral effect or a network effect through the Fireblocks network. So part of the platform really has this component that allows an institution or a business to settle in a very simple way. So basically to transfer funds and crypto to um, a different partner that they have, right? And that significantly simplifies the way to do it, secures this, and allows people to operate at scale. So if you have a business like BlockFi that is on the platform, they're sort of incentivized to bring their trading partners or their clients uh, to use Fireblocks as well. And at some point, I'm not sure exactly what the number is right now, but at some point, 33% from our inbound requests were actually coming through referrals, right? So we it, it was basically, their clients or their counterparties to onboard with Fireblocks. Um, so that definitely helped us with uh, expanding very quickly. You recently announced your Web3 engine uh, that supports DeFi and NFTs. And I just wanted to get a sense of what are you most excited about that you're building right now over uh, at Fireblocks? What's the next you know feature or two that you're kind of working on that you're excited uh, that could be coming soon? I don't think about it as much as features, but rather in terms of what are we actually trying to do or where are we trying to align with the future, right? Because I think that crypto and, and digital assets is such a big and transformative thing that you really need to envision how the world will look like in five or 10 years now, right? So I think that right now, a lot of the activity that, that is being done using digital assets and cryptocurrency is essentially some of this is basically scary around investments, right? Investing for, you know, whether it is in Bitcoin or other assets, but it's a, it's essentially investment and trading and that kind of stuff. I think the power of this technology is actually in the real world applications that uh, are going to transform the day-to-day -day lives, right? So the, the, the areas that we're really excited about is first and foremost, how it will affect payments, because I think that from a financial standpoint, payment is the most universal use case that people have, right? It basically affects businesses, consumers, anyone, right? That uh, in terms of how they interact with others on the financial standpoint. 
And cryptocurrencies, especially in the form of stable coins, are going to really revolutionize how you do it initially on the international uh, level and emerging markets where you have significant deficiencies in the old system. And eventually, I think that other technologies, they will basically replace the existing rails in the first world countries, right? So uh, everything that we're doing around payments, and we're doing quite a lot, is uh, something that is exciting for us. So we're doing a lot of projects around stable coins. We're doing a lot of projects around uh, PSPs. We acquired a company in that area back in uh, January. In addition to that, like as you mentioned, we, we are really doubling down on the Web3 promise, right? And honestly, this is almost like a Pandora box of a lot of different things that are going to happen and uh, and we are very excited about. NFT is a big part of it. Okay? Most people are familiar with NFTs today as sort of ability to attach uh, or tokenize uh, digital art specifically. But the use cases over there are so broad uh, in terms of how it will affect media, how it will affect content, and especially internet content. And if you think about it, the vast majority of information and intellectual property that was created in the last 20 years is actually digital, right? And so the ability to apply economics on it is really novel. And uh, I think it will really transform how people do business across the internet. And this is something that we're really interested in providing the infrastructure for and making sure that it's being done in a secure and sound way. What do you make with the moment that we're going through right now in crypto? So, you know, it's basically, let's call it June of 2022. How do you think or internalize what's happening around us right now? And then I want to talk a little bit about where you think the world is headed five years out, 10 years out, and what you think this all could look like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit difficult to integrate, right? What exactly going on? The first reaction that I have is that this is just macro, right? This is well beyond crypto because right now all technology is sort of correlated, right? And uh, everything is being under significant pressure from both on one hand inflation, right? But on the other hand, basically the the interest rate hikes that uh, are targeting the inflation, right? So I think in some ways crypto is part of that entire bucket. And that specifically sort of impacts the use cases around trading, right? But the reason why people are not trading as much uh, Bitcoin or they're not trading as much other coins is for the same reason they're not trading other stock, right? It's just that people are spooked. They see all those prices are dropping and the big institutions are trying to basically leave their risk assets and exit to cash. So that's like, I think, on the value side. To be honest, I'm personally less concerned about that. I think that when we started the company, uh, literally a couple of months later, Bitcoin prices were dropped to uh, 3,500, right? So we are 10x from where we started the company. And back then, there was sort of an existential question if crypto is a thing, right? In Back in 2000. 18, people were just asking themselves, is, is this thing going to survive? What is really clear for us right now from anyone I'm speaking with, you know, regardless if it's a, a Web3 developer, a crypto hedge fund, or a traditional financial institution, or just like a Fortune 500 from the wholesale business, right? 
there is a strong belief that this is the future. Those are the rails of the future, and those going there are going to be real implications in terms of how this is going to transform the financial system and broadly, probably, also a lot of aspects on the internet. And everyone are are feeling quite empowered to continue and build, right? So you see this kind of huge focus right now and just continue and build the important stuff and continue to build the infrastructure and the real world use cases and less focus on the speculative nature of it, which I think that it's way more important than uh, trying to predict if Bitcoin is going to go to 100,000 or not. If the world plays out the way you want it to, let's just say, over the next decade, what are some of the things that you can see that will become solved um, because of Fireblocks? What we are building is will, will be foundational for just the adoption of crypto and making sure that actually things are way more secure than what they are right now. Not only in crypto, by the way, but just generally speaking in terms of uh, the way that the internet works and the, the way that financial services work, right? So hopefully we are heading, right? And, uh, and where Fireblocks will actually play a big role in terms of uh, what's going to happen. I do think that the infrastructure that we are building will create a lot of opportunities for innovative ideas on how you know the internet economy is going to evolve. And, and a lot of what I think is really the integration between money, right? So whether it will be stable coins or central bank digital currencies or just uh, maybe native crypto value like Bitcoin and identity, right? That will be tokenized and whether digital or non-digital uh, goods, right? And all that will basically work in, in a single ecosystem where people will be much closer to consuming it and they will be able to interact with all of it without intermediaries, right? And and that's important because it really unlocks a lot of efficiencies for people. And specifically, it widens the participation across all those uh, assets and brings the control to the to the end user, right? So a lot of the exciting things that you see, even in a sort of like, you know, the edge of this ecosystem right now is how people are working on projects that, to a certain degree, disintermediate data ownership of social networks, right? You can think also on a lot of the content that is being created right now by influencers, TikTok influencers or just uh, musicians that contribute their content. Right now, the ownership on that content is immediately being moved to the platforms where they're uploading it, right? And now, if the ownership of that is actually held by them, because they have that token that uh, owns the the ownership for, for, for that asset, then I'm as a, a TikTok influencer can upload that contact to TikTok, and, but the, basically the distribution from all the royalties, right, all the advertisement revenue that uh, is being paid, I can now take this token and I can basically borrow against the future revenue by uh, putting it into some kind of DeFi protocol where someone is willing to lend me, like basically some kind of factoring, right? That they can willing to give me a loan right now on the future revenue that uh, this video is going to generate and I can go and buy a car. And specifically that basically, of course, some of those services are available to citizens in, you know, first world countries, you know, not always it's actually easy to access them. 
they're not available anywhere else. And then, and I think it will unlock a lot of those things. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to transition a little bit to you, Michael. I'm just going to ask a few quick questions here uh, because you're so fascinating. You grew up in Israel. Um, I've read that your stepfather taught you to program when you were just seven. And by 13, you had already started your first company, a web development company. Um, was it just always clear to you that you were an entrepreneur, that you were a founder? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, from a very young age, the creation, the fact that really programming and computers and the internet allows you to create something big out of basically nothing, right, without any capital, it always was fascinating to me. And I think I was always very attracted to that, whether I'll do it by as sort of like leading something like that or, you know, working that in an organization that uh, will do this. I don't think it was very clear to me at a, at a very young age, but it's but but if you actually sort of look at, the, at what I was doing uh, when I was, I don't know, 13, 15, 18, I was going after those projects by myself. So I guess it's always been there. Was there something, Michael, that stands out that your your parents did or about your upbringing that you think has contributed to your success? What makes you so special? Well, first of all, I don't think I'm so special. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of people that are um, very special. And, uh, and I think that the ability to really, you know, focus and innovate and create something impactful exists with a lot of people, right? One of the most important things that I... I learned to value in a young age, and that's probably not because I was special, it's because I was actually quite, uh, I don't know, average on a lot of other uh, areas. It's just like hard work. So, Amen. Yeah, I think people uh, think that, you know, people that, that raise to the top, they just, you know, they're geniuses or they uh, have some kind of superpower. I think it's just the ability to work hard and not to give up and actually be able to recover from failures, right? Because the, the amount of times that I actually failed <laughs> in doing a lot of different things, including startups, <laughs> outnumbered the number of times that I was successful. Actually, I, I once read that the statistics around when are you able to do your first successful startup is actually 3.3 failures. So... You really need to have like uh, the, the the capacity to work hard and not to afraid from, you know, failing multiple times. You served in the IDF eighty two hundred intelligence unit in the Israeli army. How do you feel like that's impacted you as an entrepreneur? I think that there are there are books written about that that unit, uh, and uh, that's probably the most impactful experience that I had. Uh, and you know, my co-founder served in the same units, and a lot of the Israeli tech entrepreneurs serve there as well, or in comparable units. There is something very unique about what's happening over there in the sense that you're sort of 18 years old, 
you know, you might know a bit how to program. You're doing some they're providing some kind of crash course in terms of uh, sort of elevating your competency in those areas. But inherently, they're basically throwing you at into an environment where you need to really solve extremely hard problems uh, in a fairly short period of time with limited amount of resources. And there is no sort of way for you to say no. And just basically the general attitude is that everything is possible from a technical standpoint, right? So I have one experience that uh, I still remember that we were in the middle of some kind of operation and we ended up with a fairly unprecedented technical challenge that uh, no one knew how to solve. There was an extreme time pressure over there. And I told to my commander, you know, like, look, we don't know how to deal with this signal, right? We don't have any experience here. And he basically told me, like, something like, we don't pay you, you know, to tell them I don't know how to do it. We pay you to solve it, right? And we just went and solved it. Clearly, you know, they were paying us something like $100 per month. So the economic incentive was not what was driving us, but what was driving us is really the fact that the mindset was that everything is solvable, and you just like have to solve it. And I think that that part uh, stayed with me and with a lot of people I'm working with to this day. As a serial entrepreneur, is there something you hold as sacred? Something that sort of is a North Star in your head that just helps propel you towards success? What is it? I think that it's just the desire to build and innovate, right? That's what is the the North Star to me, and also the fact that, you know, there are a couple of values, right? So that's like one uh, very important thing to me. The second thing that is just a value that goes back to the hard work is this kind of refuse to lose mentality. That is another important value. And at least in our business, it's sort of customers come first, right? So be to be extremely customer facing. And it actually ties into the first uh, thing that I said, because if you spend a lot of time with the customers and you really value them, then it's just inspiring you to build more exciting stuff for them, right? So you're really sort of enjoying how, see, something that you, you know, like an idea that one second is in, in your mind and the other second is, you know, you have this large amount of people using it. I love that um, so much. So, Michael, I'm going to ask just three very quick questions. Just tell us the first thing that comes to your mind. What is the biggest pinch me moment you've had to date at Fireblocks? The, the the day where you literally went home and said, I can't believe we actually pulled that off. What was it? The first deployment. Fast forward two years. How many days a week do people go into offices? Two to three days. <laughs> um, and then fast forward, other than Fireblocks, is there another category of innovation right now that you're personally really excited about or passionate about or interested in? Mostly, I would say clean tech and, and, and green energy. That's like the category that I think is... I don't know much about it, right? I'm not an expert over there, but I think that this is one of the most important things right now for humanity to focus on. I love that. Um, first of all, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. We, your building has been something I followed so strongly and we're all rooting for you in every way. Everyone out there, if you want to learn more, check out fireblocks.com and you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Michael, a sincere thank you and we're all rooting for you.